Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Have you ever been to a psychic? All right, so Mother, Father, God, Kion and I call ourselves forward into the light. We ask that we're surrounded, protected, filled with the light of the great spirit. We ask if there's any- Join me for my first reading ever and hear what she got right and what she got wrong and what she's going through during a reading. A lot of times I'll say to my clients, I'm being told and they're like, told by who? What? Where is this coming from, right? You know, I'll literally just hear ask Kion about her brother, and it's inside of my head, not outside of my ears, and I hear it. I'm clairaudient. Plus, what were American psychic researchers in the 1880s looking to accomplish? They're hoping to bring about this kind of reconciliation of science and religion by, like, proving that the soul exists. I'm Kion Wolf. I predict that's next on Audacious, after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'd ask you to sit down, but you're not going to anyway. And don't worry about the days. What days? That phase. I'm sorry. I said don't worry about it. How did you know? Oh, what's really going to bake your noodle later on is... Would you still have broken it if I hadn't said anything? That, of course, is The Matrix. I, of course, am Kion Wolf. From ancient Egypt to Greek mythology through Abrahamic religions and ancient African and Native American spiritual traditions in medieval Europe and 16th century France. Remember that Nostradamus guy? Humans have reliably attempted to predict the future, read minds, and communicate with the dead. And at this moment in our history, with a pandemic and protests and upcoming presidential election, climate change on top of the innate chaos of being a human being, it would surely be more manageable if we could somehow see into the future. So today we talk with a psychic medium, someone who claims to be able to predict the future and communicate with the dead. Later in the show, you'll meet a researcher who looks back at some of the ways psychic abilities have been tested and understood, or not, in American history. But first, join me for my first ever psychic reading. All right, so Mother, Father, God, Kion and I call ourselves forward into the light. We ask that we're surrounded, protected, filled with the light of the great spirit. We ask if there's any... Karen Hollis is a psychic medium from Rocky Hill, and she's been doing this work for 40 years. She's had over 7,000 clients. She's been featured on the Discovery and Travel Channels. She's assisted police on investigations. And she's worked with the Ghosts of New England Research Society, or Goners. Now, I am, overall, not inclined to believe in stuff that I can't measure or replicate. I'm really more into the five senses, but I do know well enough to know that this human existence is also full of stuff that we don't understand. And that's kind of thrilling, right? Uh, That wonder makes me feel small in a good way. I'd never had a psychic reading before because, if I'm being honest with myself, I'd worried that my skepticism 
would be challenged. And if I'm faced with more things that I don't understand on top of all the things I already don't understand, well, what then? But in the name of public radio, this week, I connected with Karen via Zoom. Here's how she got started. So, Kion, as you can see, I'm shuffling this deck of cards. I need you to say stop when you want me to stop. So take a deep breath and just... Stop. Got it. Perfect. Okay. Now, I'm cutting those cards into three separate piles, a left, a middle, and a right. Which one do you want me to read? Left, middle, or right? Right. Okay, cool. So, let's see what comes. It felt like there was a relationship. I feel like this relationship may have spanned six years, okay, without even looking at the cards. And I feel like this person, like, kind of comes in and out of your life, and you're like, eh, I don't know about this, you know, maybe, maybe not. Am I, like, three years back in your life, or was there a long relationship that you connect, you come together, it doesn't work, you go apart? I don't know if it's, it's work or distance or the personalities that you're like, I just can't decide on you. I can't do this with you. There was someone on a shorter level six years ago that that was sort of like, eh, Six eh. years, okay. Six years. Okay, all right. (laughs) Right. So intelligence is sexy to you. I know that, okay. So they not only have to have outwardly what most people, you know, would be attracted to, but they also have to have something that fires off for you. So let me just take a quick look, okay. Your career, we know that's very important to you, okay? And it shows stable relationship coming, okay? Or instable relationship. I also want to say to you, in this committed relationship, it shows marriage or uh, the ace of hearts and five of hearts is marriage or commitment. So are you married or committed or what's up with that? We are getting married in October. Ah, congratulations. Very cool. Um, You've always been in these sort of support positions. And this is your time, okay? The next three years are going to be really... Uh, an amazing time for you. Very informational. You know, I do feel like your podcast is going to take off. Okay. But this isn't your ultimate goal. You're doing this. But I do think that uh, the man that you're marrying is, he's dynamic. He definitely will give you a run for your money because he's stubborn. So do you see stubborn in him? A little bit? It's a woman. Oh, I'm sorry. Her. Yes. I apologize. What is her name? Emily. Emily. All right, so let's just see what comes for you and Emily. How are things going to be? Let's see. There also was an issue of moving. So did you recently move? Were you talking about moving? We just bought this house two years ago. and it's Nice. Who's into like wanting a little bit of property or land or gardening or sustainable? Emily. Emily. Okay. Yeah. So she wants like her own vegetable garden and stuff like that? She ran all the community gardens for Hartford, and we have a giant backyard. I saw gardening, like, everywhere around her. Yeah, very cool. Okay, hang on. So when it came to her asking you, or you asking her, okay, to marry, there was a lot of thought put into this, because you are definitely a free spirit. I don't think that you thought maybe you were going to do this, but now that you found her, I think it will be fine, Okay. She knows how to humor you, calm you down. You know what makes her crazy, okay, is what it shows. Very excited about the house. You're going to be fine financially. And look at this. She shows the lover's card, which is really cool. What do you want to know most? What's important to you, Kyone? Um, It would be cool to hear about what the future holds for this work and my abilities to do it. So what is going to happen with Kyone's career? Let's see what's going to happen. This is a jumping off point. 
it's a testing spot. It's almost like they're going to see how you do with all this. And if you want to stay in the NPR family, okay, you definitely are going to grow into it. It's going to be fine. You'll get your own, you know, it's going to continue to grow. Because Ace of Rods is all about getting it out on the airwaves, making sure that, that you have an audience. They just want to see how you're going to do it. So they're giving you the latitude to do that. But it almost feels like if you say at NPR, it's almost like, Certain people have to retire and things have to shift and change before there's a slot for you, if that makes sense, okay? I think that Audacious will take off, but it is not going to be your end result. Your interviewing skills and everything else that other people did when you were just sort of producing for Colin, that what's going to happen is you'll get your own producer and then you're going to kind of have your own signature. You're, it's just a matter of time and you're about two years away from your own, like, show show you know what i'm saying that has a a spot that's right there i mean i know you're on saturday right now i know this is in its infancy but you'll be big this is an exciting time for you my god getting married yes. what about children nope not in the picture okay <laughs> all right i've never wanted kids in fact i've always feared getting pregnant in the times in which that would have happened um, I love children and there will be like I've done some radio stuff with kids, um, but the idea of being a parent is absolutely not of interest to me. So I think that for now, because of where you guys are in your careers and how busy you are and, you know, just how much how many things you need to explore as a couple and where you want to travel to and things you want to do, that that's going to be true. But I I'm going to predict that one day she's going to say to you, you know what, Kion? Are we going to leave this to her? Like, maybe we should do think about that, okay? Because when I was asking, here's the kids card. So the child card came out. I do feel that there's a little boy that's going to come into the picture, okay? Uh, it may be like a situation where the child's being given up for adoption or whatever, and you just go, all right, what the heck? But there will be a young boy, and it clearly will be your choice. I got to say... That reading was pretty cool, even though she was wrong about the gender of my partner. And I really don't think I'm going to be a parent, but I have lived long enough to say never say never, unless you're saying the phrase never say never. But she was right about some parts of my relationships and Emily's gardens. That was so cool. And stay tuned. No, really, please stay tuned on the career stuff. After the reading, I shifted the focus to talk to Karen about her work. First, I wanted to know if it's different connecting with people via phone or Zoom rather than doing a reading in person. For, for me, no. I mean, there's no difference whatsoever because energy is energy and it travels over the airwaves. What I love is when I don't see people and I'm just doing a reading by phone. So when, I'm do when I say like today I'm going to be doing my phone readings again, I love it when I'm flying blind because then when I tell you your life or I bring through the message of your dead loved one, that will blow a skeptic's mind because there's no way that I'm doing anything but what I'm meant to do. So I prefer the phone readings just because I think that it is a more pure reading. You know, as we're talking now, you can see that I'm nodding or I'm, I'm listening a little closer. I'm not nodding. Is there any degree of when you are doing in-person readings that you are getting feedback as to whether or not you're on the right track? Yeah, I mean, that's always helpful. It's not necessary, but it's helpful. I think the thing that bothers me is, you know, they'll have gotten um, advice from their friends. Well, when you go in to see Karen, 
don't give her any visual cues because surely that's what she's reading, right? But the idea of reading somebody is a reciprocal thing, right? So like if I'm on the phone with them, I need to know yes or no, you know, is that correct or not? Think of this like you're a bloodhound or you're a sniffing dog and you're on a trail, right? And you've got the scent, all right? If you're not getting any feedback, if the dog isn't getting an attaboy or a cookie or something at the end of all of this, okay, what's the point? I mean, you know, it's a uh, reciprocal energetic agreement between the two of us that I'm going to try and help you. And when I'm right, I just want you to acknowledge that or even a no is helpful. Let's say I said something to you and you said, no, Karen, that's not right. Well, you know what I do with that? I go, well, I reserve the right to be wrong. We'll see. And then I continue on. I know what I'm getting and it could be psychic amnesia. Maybe you just don't recognize what I'm saying or you don't see it that way now, but it's going to unfold. So you can't take it personally. Sometimes you are wrong, but you will be right later. But there are times where you are wrong and you are corrected. Like when you did my reading, you thought I was marrying a man. And I was like, ah, oh, it's, it's a woman. How do you explain that discrepancy when something like that happens? Because gender is a pretty prominent part of relationships and readings. In the tarot, the first card of the tarot is the fool card. And the fool card is the adolescent Adam, but he's neither male nor female. So spirit to me is genderless, if that makes any sense, okay? And then when you go into the next cards uh, in the tarot, it goes to the magician, which is a more male energy, and the high priestess, which would be a more female energy. But when I am wrong about something, I'm just wrong. I mean, I reserve the right to be wrong. You, you know, like I said to you, in order to be good at this, you have to leave your ego. You have to check that at the curb. I wonder, because gender fluidity is becoming more and more accepted, if that will be sort of a challenge in terms of reading. Whereas, you know, over the past decades, certainly gender fluidity has always existed as long as the human animal has. But if the tarot is divided into male energy, female energy, if that might make your job a little harder as people are coming to terms, as more people are coming to terms with maybe their gender fluidity. It is because it's an ancient oracle. You got to remember that when I was taught to read the symbolism, uh, we weren't in this gender fluid, you know, generational state that we're in now. Although the fool card is neither male nor female. He, he is just, he's a fool for coming to earth. Okay. And <laughs> to run this, this spiritual gauntlet. Some would argue we all are. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I wear a necklace that has the fool on it. It's my favorite card because he's the zero. He's starting all over again. He doesn't have any preconceived notions and he is, he's not, um, He's not jaded. Do you know what I'm saying? You know, when you're young and you're not jaded. So, you know, getting back to gender, I I just see it as soul or spirit. Love is love to me. So I, I And you defaulted to male just because that was your presumption. Yeah. I mean, I suppose somebody could say, you know, okay, she didn't know I was gay. Well, it definitely shows me you didn't uh, research me on Facebook beforehand, which was great. <laughs> and, and on that note, I want to talk to you about that, okay? So the people who say, oh, you know, um, she must research me online, the more your consciousness knows about somebody, the less able you are to be psychic or be real with them. Remember I said to you that I have, I have very few friends. I mean, I have good friends but you're either my client or my friend. I have very few friends that like cross over. And when that happens, I have to refer them out to other people because I know too much about them. It actually hinders my psychic to know anything. I would rather know nothing. I'd rather go in blind. 
That was psychic medium Karen Hollis. After the break, with all these messages coming to her, how does she decide what to say? I don't want to be God. I'm not, I'm not whatever source is or whatever this is. If it's something that will benefit you and that you can make a choice about it, I'll say it. If it's not, it's not my choice. It's not my job. I'm Kyone Wolf. I predict you'll be back for more of Audacious. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today we're talking about what it's like to be a psychic medium, someone who says they can predict some aspects of the future and communicate with the dead. And coming up, you'll meet a researcher who looks back at some of the ways psychic abilities have been tested and understood or not in American history. But now we're back with psychic medium Karen Hollis. You heard her give me my first reading ever, and I wanted to know how she deals with skeptics, people who flat out don't believe her, or who might say she's a fraud. The heart of it is, is that I welcome skepticism because it tells me that you're intellectually at least considering that there might be something outside of yourself, okay? Or not. The good news is I don't take it personally because it's not directed at me. It's directed at the phenomena or the ability to do this, all right? But if if you want to come to me respectfully and you say to me like you did, I'm skeptical. I don't know if I believe this, but I'm willing to be open-minded about it. I'm good with that. What bothers me are the trolls online or the immediate you're a fraud or people who do this are out to scam people. I think that that's unfair because in every profession you have people who are doing it for real and there are people that just do it for money. And I believe it's my soul's purpose to do it. I didn't ask to become psychic like this. I, you know, I, I mean, if you think about it, it would have been a lot easier for me to say that in my old profession, you know, I had a title and I, you know, if you're at a dinner party, you could just say, Oh, I, you know, this is what I do for a living. Now, when people ask me what I do for a living, sometimes I want to say I'm a consultant. So it's, it depends on how skeptics approach it with me. You know, if they're going to be not open-minded, it's not worth it. I'm not out to prove anything. So I guess that's how I feel about it. I don't get offended by it anymore. You know, maybe when I was younger, I did, but not anymore. For the next part of the interview, I took off my own skeptic hat and tried to understand Karen and how she sees and moves through the world with these psychic abilities she says she has. I asked her what she experiences during a reading. A lot of times I'll say to my clients, I'm being told, and they're like, told by who? What, where is this coming from, right? You know? But spirit speaks in thought forms, whether it's people that have passed on, they speak in symbolism, or I'll literally just hear, ask Kion about her brother, and it's inside of my head, not outside of my ears, and I hear it. I'm clairaudient. Sometimes if it's a man, I'll feel bigger, I'll feel like I'm growing a mustache, And then I'll know, oh, you know, your father tells me he had a big mustache or a goatee. When they go away, they kind of just dissipate, and then I don't feel them anymore. But I don't entertain the dead all the time, so I'm not running around seeing dead people. If you're not engaging me in a reading, I'm not going to run around like the Long Island Medium and give you messages. I think that that's, um, I think it's unethical. 
let's say you're on a treadmill at the gym and I'm next to you on the treadmill and all of a sudden here comes your dead mom. In my head, I hear, hey, my name is so-and-so, tell Kayone, you know, this. I'm not going to come up to you and say that. I don't know what your relationship with your mom was. Maybe you didn't like her in life and you don't want to hear from her in death, right? I mean, who knows? I, I don't know. So it's not for me to say. Now, some people may think that this is something you're born with and you don't have to do anything to refine it, but that wasn't your story. So what does training look like? Well, first of all, I never set out to be a psychic. I never was going to do that. I was in newspapers and magazines and all of this. And when, so I ran into this woman named Virginia Randolph and she befriended me and she said, you know, you're, you're really psychic. I said, I know I was intuitive. My mother would say the phone's going to ring and then it would ring. And so Virginia for 32 years, I would meet with her once a week and she would go through all kinds of exercises. And one of those was taking a regular deck of cards and shuffling it and then putting the card in front of me and then having me put my index finger on the card. And she would say to me, okay, if the card is a red card, I want you to feel it as hot. If the card is a black card, I want you to feel it as cold. And I want you to continue this until you can get almost the entire deck calling it on each card. So she was teaching me how to project my consciousness and my feeling rather than, so we tend to live in our head, okay? Psychics feel their way through the world. They don't think their way through the world. And so it's, it's projecting that feeling. And then as you get older with the training, you can project further and further out in terms of time. Is there ever a time where you don't pass on information? Yep, all the time. I ask to be told only that which you can do something about. If you can change the outcome of it, or if it's a choice that, that you're going to make and you can avert whatever this is, then tell me and I'll pass the information along to Kayon. But if it's, I believe some things are faded and some things are not. We all have these sort of different exit points in our life where we may be able to take a wrong turn. And if we wanted to kind of opt out of this lifetime, we could do that. But it's not my job. I don't want to be God. I'm not, I'm not whatever source is or whatever this is. There's good and bad in everybody's life. If it's something that will benefit you in that you can make a choice about it, I'll say it. If it's not, it's not my choice. It's not my job. Do people ever ask for medical insights? You know, you're going to have a heart attack or do you should try to get that mole checked out. Um, and if so, do you tell them? If it were something serious, I would say you just need to get it checked out. Like you just need to see your physician. But I'm not going to go down that road of predicting anything because first of all, again, out of my, everything that I say, people will hang on that if I've been right about things in the past. And it's not for me to do that. So I don't want the responsibility of it. If somebody came to me and said, listen, my mom is dying of pancreatic cancer and I am sitting by her bedside every day. I just want to know when this is going to be over with. I can't take it anymore. Could you please ask? Okay. I will ask in earnest. And if I get an answer, I will give it. But only in those situations where we have a terminally ill person and the person in front of me is suffering greatly. So here we are and. July of 2020, and the world's pretty crazy. And I know the world's always pretty crazy. I mean, every era has its own wonkiness, but this is a doozy we're in. And so I wonder what you're noticing in all the years you've been doing this work now. What are people wanting from you? Assurance. Assurance that it's going to be okay. 
And so I'll tell you why people come to psychics uh, rather than going to therapists or to other people. They're looking for the special insight to know that things are going to be okay. And the truth of the matter is, is that no matter what happens, it will be okay. You will be okay. I'll be okay. It will be okay. And then I try and put it in perspective. World War II was no cakewalk. Vietnam was no cakewalk, okay? Um, the Great Depression was no cakewalk. So our generation is facing, I think, more issues. So they're looking just for reassurance. Many of them will say, I need my dose of Karen. I need to, like, if you can tell me what's going on in my life, then I know that you know me well enough that I can talk to you. And then we can talk about the choices that are coming up that you see, that I see. And then I can make better choices in my life. So I think that's what I provide as assurance. I hope anyway. Do people ever get addicted to seeing you? People get addicted to psychics. I won't let them get addicted to me because I don't want the responsibility of running their life. I'm there for them if they're going through, like let's say somebody's going through a divorce or separation or the death of somebody. You know, I'll be there for them for a period of time. So maybe I might do three readings for them, you know, in quick succession. But after that, I ask them to, you know, you need to sit with this. And, you know, I also refer off to therapists because I'm not a therapist. I'm not trained to be a therapist. I don't, I can identify it as animal, mineral, or vegetable, but I can't fix it, you know. So I, I, I'm always referring off to doctors, therapists, things like that. So I won't let them get addicted to me. The other issue is, is when you have people in deep grief, especially elderly people that have lost maybe somebody they've been married to for 50 or 60 years, or people that have lost children, you know, you want to be supportive of all of that. But the truth of the matter is, is that everybody needs to heal. And that just takes time. And so I'll tell them, you know, I, I don't want to hear from you again until six months goes by or a year goes by. I think that's important not to take advantage. So you have to have very strict boundaries and you have to recognize that if you have any ethics, you're not going to take advantage of them monetarily. When you're getting messages from someone who has died, that's one way that's from them through you to me. Can we talk to them the way we've always done without you in the middle? So they hear us when we talk. Yes. So what will happen is, is when I'm working with the dead, I give them strict rules of how I want the information. What is your name? How did you die? Were you cremated? Okay. Or were you laid out? Is there something about when you died that you want me to relay to the person? And then what is your personality? What did you do for a living? Tell me something about yourself that only your loved one would know. Okay. So that they know it's you. Show me a photograph that's out on a, like a mantelpiece or show me a moment in time that they're going to recognize. Okay. So when the dead speak to me that way, that's how the information comes in because they'll say to me, tell them, I know that Kion has a picture of me by her bedside. And every night she says, I love you, mom, or I love you. So-and-so. And so they'll say, you talk, I'll listen. I believe it's like, taking a postcard and sticking it in a post box in heaven is what I want to say, or wherever this is. I mean, I don't know. They get the message. You don't need me to give them the message of love. There's no way I could be reading their memories or mind reading because I haven't had those experiences and they're giving me things. There's no way I could know. So I know that there's something beyond all this. I just don't know what it is. Hey, we'll see. You know, we will see. It's comforting to imagine that they're tapping into you to talk to me. But like, 
they're not just hanging around waiting to talk to us out there, are they? Like they've got a life wherever they are. I I believe in reincarnation. I believe that if that we have to evolve as souls, and I believe that it's a courageous soul that comes to earth to go into the physical body, to experience all of the things that we experience in the physical, including the pain, et cetera, et cetera. Perhaps that's karmic. We burn off some karma. Karma doesn't happen in the same lifetime. Karma happens in many lifetimes, but no, I don't believe that they're just hanging out in some alternative universe and they're going to stay there forever. I do believe they evolve, but I also believe that for a period of time, they're in this alternative universe and that there's some kind of a resting time. I think the ultimate goal is to become source, is to be source, because we are source. We are that energy that is one. There have been over a hundred billion souls which have inhabited this planet since human beings as we know them have existed. So where do you think they are? Like, do you picture that realm that people go to in the afterlife, that it has all these souls still in it? Are there other planets in which we do and are capable of evolving? Is this the only one? It's planetary, but I mean, if you think of the universe as being exponentially large, I mean that it can hold as many souls as, as source, something greater than us can hold, I suppose. I think that each person, you and I talked about each person being its own little God, a part of source, a piece of whatever people call God. And then they go out into the universe to experience and to evolve. And it's a continual evolvement. I've been fascinated with what happens to us after we die for many years. I mean, I grew up in Catholicism, moved away from it. I think until science can perfect the evidence of what's beyond all of this, it's just that big question mark, you know, and I'm okay with that. I don't have to have all the answers. I just know that what I do creates, it alleviates grief, it lowers anxiety, and it makes me of service. And so I got the best job in the world. It's a heavy load to carry, but it's also helped me a lot. Keeps me out of my own life. (laughs) Knowing all this information about the difficulties people are going through, do you think that makes you a more compassionate person? Yes, it has made me much less judgmental of anything because when you judge it, you take it on. My job is to be a vessel of some type of compassion so that they can feel that there's someone that is sitting and holding that space for them for at least an hour. I think before all of this, I wasn't a compassionate person. I was a nice person, but it was it's different. So yeah much more compassionate. Is there a future of psychic mediumship that you see evolving? And it's funny to ask a psychic about the future of their own work, but what do you see for the future of what you do? I mean, I have a lot of hope for the future when it comes to this kind of work, because I think people want to make a difference in the world. And I feel that making yourself available to other people, holding that space for them to be themselves. I think a lot of people want to do that. What I see with my students is that it's esoteric knowledge and it takes a lot of work. You have to be able to set your ego aside. It's not about you being right or wrong. It's about you being of service. A couple episodes ago, I talked to an antinatalist philosopher. This antinatalist philosophy is that it is morally wrong to bring more sentient beings onto the planet. And at the end of the interview, I asked, what do you think happens after we die? And he says, I think when we die, that's it. We're gone. There's no continuation of our consciousness. And he made the point that when we go 
under with anesthesia. We're gone. There's no place we go. We just, we disappear and then we're revived. We come back. And so he said, if our consciousness can't survive anesthesia, how in the world could our consciousness survive the mortality of our body? Hmm. What do you say to that? I believe that we leave our physical bodies every night when we go to sleep because we're clearly not conscious, but we are connected by an energetic thread to the physical body. And I believe that we are not our body, okay, that our consciousness does survive. And my, the reasoning I believe that is because what am I talking to if it's not the consciousness of the people who pass away, okay? I also believe that in reincarnation, I don't believe that we only do this once. I think that all things evolve. Just because we step aside from our consciousness in a sleep function or in a um, surgical function does not mean that we don't exist. It just means that we're not conscious of our existence at that moment. Best circumstance for your next life. What do you think it'll look like? I don't know. I, I hope I still have this intuitive ability. I think I probably have in previous lifetimes, or I don't think I could have gotten this far. I hope, again, it's something that uh, brings some kind of uh, peace to myself and to other people. That's what I think. You know, I, I'm a service kind of a person. You know, it's important for me to be able to uh, give back and feel a part of something. So that's, I don't know. I haven't thought about it, but that's an interesting question. I should throw down some cards, shouldn't I? <laughs> Just let me explain that in my next life, it's gonna be a whole new game. That was psychic medium Karen Hollis. You can check her out at readingsbykaren.com. Next. They're hoping to bring about this kind of reconciliation of science and religion by like proving that the soul exists. Hear about the lengths American researchers went to to understand psychic mediums in our country and what they did and didn't find out. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today we're talking about psychic mediums. Alicia Polyanisi is the author of the forthcoming book, Common Phantoms, an American history of psychic science, exploring the questions of faith and doubt, orthodoxy and marginality that underpin the field of parapsychology. She points out that these practices are present in spiritual traditions throughout history and around the world, and a lot of religions engage in prophecy or communion with ancestors. A lot of the popular conventions around psychic abilities in America today and the idea of probing them with scientific tests really comes from the 19th century. In 1848, this new movement of capital S spirituality emerged in, of all places, upstate New York. There are these two young sisters, Maggie and Kate Fox, who began producing loud rapping sounds that they said came from the spirits of the dead. And when you say rapping, you're talking about like knocking type, sort of pounding away. Yeah, it's like what you would hear if you like knocked on a table. And they're claiming that this is a kind of Morse code and that the spirits are making the sounds. 
in order to communicate from the afterlife. This introduced the idea to the English-speaking Christian world that we can communicate directly with the dead and that individual identity persists in a way that we can actually encounter. So there's a whole like elaborate theology that they build, that spiritualists build around these wrappings. They're saying that this is like the metaphysical equivalent of a telegraph, that spirits from the afterlife have like broken down the barrier between living and dead, and um, that they've created a spiritual telegraph, which is what a lot of spiritualists called it. And they've decided to do this with two sisters in Rochester, New York, in the 1840s. Yes, 1848 was a real big year. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It was a real sensation. A lot of religious leaders were trying to develop new ideas, and spiritualism helped them really articulate this positive vision of heaven. Like, spiritualism doesn't have a hell. Everyone goes to heaven. So spiritualism remained, like, very popular from the 1850s until the turn of the 20th century, with some fluctuations and, like, changes in who was involved in it. And so in 1882, uh, a group of scholars and philosophers and scientists got together in England to investigate these phenomena. And they called this set of phenomena psychical. And so this includes like hypnotism, telepathy, spirit mediumship, hauntings. These British scientists and scholars uh, wanted to get together an organization to really try and apply a scientific lens to this and use objective scientific tools to investigate. At the same time, many of them were believers in spiritualism. And so they were also hoping to find scientific evidence of the immortality of the soul. And this was meant as a counterpoint to the materialist philosophy that dominated science, which holds that there's nothing beyond the measurable physical world. And so they're hoping to bring about this kind of reconciliation of science and religion by like actually proving that the soul exists. Which serves a a lot of purposes, one being really, really comforting because you and I are these bundles of consciousness and it it doesn't feel great to imagine that my consciousness won't survive the death of my body. So for them to to achieve this, it would feel good, (laughs) I think, in a basic level, but also for them to finally prove or have some sort of, you know, reckoning with these spiritual acts, that would also probably be a massive leap forward with humanity, right? That's definitely how they saw it. And they were very ambitious in imagining that, you know, this was something that the 19th century could accomplish because there had been so much scientific progress. um, And this was sort of the final frontier for them. The thing is that they're not just trying to study it psychologically, like what is the psychology of belief? They're like trying to explain it. And we still really have, you know, we still have this impulse. It's like, let's put some Buddhist monks in an fMRI machine and scan their brains and see what, you know, transcendence looks like. So you were saying that this group of British scientists want to prove their hypotheses, right? And so what what ways did they try to do that? What were some of their experiments? Yeah, the British scientists persuaded their American colleagues to start a similar group that was called the American Society for Psychical Research, and that's established in 1884. 
One of the leaders of this American society was William James, who many people still consider the founder of modern American psychology. And for him to throw his support behind psychical research as a project is really significant. And a lot of people join in, a lot of really respected, illustrious scientists join in this project. A lot of what they do at first is testing mediums and determining which mediums were really communicating with the dead. There's other possibilities that mediums were reading the minds of the living using telepathy. They're only able to talk like my grandmother because they're reading my mind and my thoughts about my grandmother. That's still a neat trick. (laughs) It's a great trick. Yeah. Um, And so for people who are repelled by spiritualism, but still think that mediums are accessing some kind of special, you know, forces, that telepathy idea is very attractive. And then, of course, the third possibility is that the mediums are just faking entirely. And so these dignified men of science go to a lot of seances with very famous mediums. Uh, They sit around the table and hold hands. And at that point, mediums were really into physical manifestations. You know, violins would play themselves, candlesticks would float around, a ghost would appear out of a cabinet. Did candlesticks really float around and stuff? Like, Well, I mean, I wasn't there. (laughs) (laughs) And sometimes they would manage to get a medium in the laboratory. Mediums really didn't like going to the laboratory. They claimed that they couldn't work under those conditions, like they couldn't access the spiritual forces when they were like tied down and like wired up. But when they did agree to go into the laboratory, they were often not able to produce phenomena. At the same time, they their claim was that their bodies were instruments and they were very sensitive and had to be in rapport, basically, with the spiritual world and with these spiritual forces. And like their nervous system itself was this kind of machinery, like a telegraph, that had to be carefully calibrated. They just couldn't do that in the laboratory. And they really preferred to do that in a dark room (laughs) with velvet curtains. (laughs) Big velvet really uh, was very successful back then. Yeah. It muffles sound. They were very specific about the settings. And so there were a lot of exposés, like a lot of mediums were exposed for fraud. So... It's a dicey world, and that's why it's you know, interesting that these academic scientists engaged with it. And a lot of them were very disillusioned by what they saw and left the Psychical Research Society and felt like it was a quotes book, like they had found their answer and it was, no, this is not authentic. But there are some, including William James, who regularly attend seances and who also collect reports from the public about psychical phenomena, and they continue to believe that there is something to it, while acknowledging that there's a tremendous amount of fraud. You know, there are times in a seance when most of what the medium says is gibberish or it's really trite, kind of like, heaven is great, I love it here, kind of stuff. But then in the midst of that, they'll say something that's very unique that is only known by close family and friends. Uh, these identifying details that are really convincing and make them feel like there's a true connection by way of the medium 
to the afterlife and to their dead loved ones. And I think that's still a characteristic of, you know, seances and mediumship today, that there's often just this one detail that really hooks people. So they're able to confirm that sometimes it is outright fraud, but it seems to be hovering in this place in the middle where you can't prove it is and you can't prove it isn't. Yeah. Yeah. So that's something that James calls ever not quiteness. There's just an ever not quite quality to it. And it really kept him engaged in that set of practices throughout his life, just trying to understand what are the possibilities here. You know, he was by no means naive, but at the same time, he felt that for scientists to dismiss such phenomena out of hand was also not scientific, that neither belief nor disbelief were scientific stances because they don't admit new evidence. And so spiritualism and mediumship were really popular phenomena. Ordinary people, teachers, train engineers, dentists, um, was interested in and curious about this stuff. So they wrote letters to the American Society for Psychical Research. And so that was the material that I was using in my book. And it really captures this range of experiences and experiments that ordinary people were doing. Oh, like what? Well, so the society wanted people to do more controlled experiments uh, where they would guess numbers uh, or like guess cards. And this was a test for telepathy. Like it originated in a parlor game. A common parlor game was, you know, for one person to like pull a card and other people to try to guess it. And this became a way of doing a somewhat controlled psychic experiment to see, you know, who was a good medium. It reminds me of the beginning of Ghostbusters, the first one, when Dr. Venkman, played by Bill Murray, uh, he's conducting an ESP test on two students. And he's got a card, you know, like, like a giant playing card. And they have to guess what is on that card. And they get shocked if they're wrong. And Oh, yeah. No, this is like the direct lineage of that. Um, like the ESP cards appear... It's like a continuous history um, where the American Society for Research kind of like struggled along. It never really got enough funding or buy-in from academic institutions to produce high-quality research. And the only place where it got a foothold in academia was at Duke University. And in 1935, the researcher J.B. Ryan established a parapsychology laboratory So Ryan's goal was to bring psychical research into the realm of modern experimental science. And so it's Ryan who coins the term extrasensory perception or ESP. And he invented this pack of ESP cards that he used to run standardized tests on research subjects. So you could run a lot of people using this testing paradigm. So Ryan is trying to win the approval, he's trying to win the approval of science and scientific institutions. So at that point, the immortality of the soul is supposed to be off the table. This is something that he's studying as a physical phenomenon. But as you see in the movie Ghostbusters, it's really hard because among the public, there is still a desire for communion with the dead and a desire to engage with these metaphysical questions 
of what happens to us when we die, where do we go, can we communicate, are the dead with us in some way. Ryan was not successful. (laughs) Um, You know, they had failed to gain scientific credibility. So considering this long history of trying to figure out what the hell's going on with us and what this phenomenon is when it comes and when we see it and when it makes our heart skip a beat, considering all you've seen as we've tried to figure this out, do you think we ever will? I don't think that there's going to be a single unified theory that explains like the great mysteries of life and the universe. I'm sorry. <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, for me, what's really interesting in spiritualism and in psychical research and in the ongoing interest in, you know, supernormal abilities is this idea of radical communion of listening to the dead and really trying to understand what their world was, that we carry responsibility to the dead and to the living at the core of our spiritual lives. And I think what mediumship is onto is that we are permeable to forces larger than ourselves and that we should be, but we're also so limited in our understanding of those forces And we only experience them through the scripts that are available to us, even if we're trying to think outside of those scripts. It's what William James called the ever not quite, the sense that there's something that's eluding our grasp and it's very important, but we can't hold it. That was Alicia Polianisi. And you can read so many more stories in her book, Common Phantoms, An American History of Psychic Science, which is coming out August 25th. Audacious is produced by me and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. Find more information and subscribe to our show at ctpublic.org audacious. You can send me your thoughts and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Wolf. And if psychic abilities are a part of your life, I really want to hear your thoughts on this one. My email is cwolf at ctpublic.org. And online, use the hashtag audaciouspublic. Thanks for listening.